Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one mccrispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. So excited to have this next guest. He is a New York Times bestselling novelist. He has written TV shows. He has written comic books. He's even written games, and he's even written super valuable books about how to write and how to write a great novel. And also he's even written, he's one of the few people who's written a legit Star Wars novel blessed by the Star Wars franchise. Chuck Wendig is on the podcast and we're gonna talk about all things writing. Chuck, I don't even know how to introduce you. You're you've had honestly my dream career. It's Chuck Wendig. Uh maybe I mean you're best known for a lot of things. I'll talk about two of them, but we could talk about all of them. Sure. Um you've won various awards in writing and 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 so on. You've been uh, a science fiction writer. I would say you've yeah. been a borderline horror thriller. Definitely uh, horror, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. horror. And we'll discuss the differences between the different genres. Yeah, great. So your your science fiction also has focused a lot on Star Wars. You're one of the only authors I know of that have written what's called canon novels, meaning 
They're approved by the Star Wars franchise by Disney sure, to be official. <laughs> yeah. yeah, official timeline novels like sure. to fill in the gaps between uh, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Yeah. Uh, when Disney bought uh, Lucas Films, and correct me if I'm wrong on anything, they kind of wiped out all. There was like a hundred different Star Wars novels, and Disney basically said, "You know what." Those don't exist anymore. Right. They that put them into what they call uh, legends, I think is how they refer to them. Right. Which is, you know, is another way of saying they're fake. Yeah. And, I mean, the good news is it was all fake anyway. <laughs> yeah. It turns out it wasn't real. So it's all good. Um, although, although I still consider some of it like semi-canon, even though they're not. Like, I feel like they could be canon because they haven't been. If it hasn't been overwritten yet. And some stuff gets pulled into the new stuff anyway because we were all kind of fans of that. And so it gets teased back in. Right, like before the podcast started, we were talking about Darth Plagueis by uh, Jim Lucino, who's also been on the podcast, and nothing's contradicted books like that, you know, or the or the Rule of Two. Nothing's really contradicted that, right? Which came from the Legends books, you know, like Darth Bane and and all that. But anyway, you've written actual canon, just like the Mandalorian is canon, and also takes place roughly around the same time, maybe a few years later after yeah. during during your book. So That's so. Right. Your, your series is Aftermath, um, which is like right after, or at least it starts off right after Return of the, the Jedi. Mandalorian's right after, like, yeah, like yeah. moments, yeah. Right, and Mandalorian is like, I don't know, like a, a decade after? I, yeah, that's, I don't think they've really nailed it down, but something like that. And then totally separately, but related, I am a huge fan of your blog. <laughs> Thank you. Terrible Minds blog, Terrible right? Minds, yeah, terribleminds.com, you got it. And, and in that, you talk about the art and practice of writing. And what I love, and I think you've only been doing this in the past year, you've also been interviewing other science fiction writers and particularly newer science fiction writers about five things they learned yeah. writing their recent book. And I just love that series of, of blog posts because I've learned I've learned so much, whether it's horror, science fiction, young adult, whatever, it, it, they all, all give really excellent insight. And then um, I really like your nonfiction books about writing. There, I, I would say, I'm going to go to your Amazon page right now because you've written so many books. I would <laughs> I say- should, I should stop, honestly. I should quit while my head. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I hope you don't. But I would say some of the, two of the best books on writing I've ever read, and there's lots of books about writing and that are very good, but The Kick-Ass Writer, 1,001 Ways to- um, uh, uh, the Kick-Ass Writer, 1,001 Ways to Write Great Fiction, Get Published, and Earn Your Audience, I think is just every writer has to read this book. Oh, like you. You, you address so many issues and you encourage the reader to ask so many questions about who they are, what their objectives are, and it really gets to the point of how writing is just as much psychological, like what's inside of you as it is creative and developing the muscles of creativity. We're going to talk about that book. And also, I don't know if you consider this on your top list of your favorite books that you've written, but I really like um, Damn Fine Story, Mastering oh, the Tools yeah. of Power. I actually prefer that to the Kick-Ass Writer. Kick-Ass Writer was just really pulled from the blog, almost word for word. Uh, and Dan, so it wasn't really focused. It was just sort of this like little bits and bites of you know tips and tricks. But uh, Damn Fine Story had more of a kind of an ethos behind it. And I think it overall holds together better because it was meant to hold better together at the outset. Right, because I feel like, so, so just like, uh, you know, I think a lot of writers use as a template or a skeleton 
you know, Joseph Campbell's arc of the hero. And in fact, just talking about Star Wars, everybody always breaks that down Star Wars in terms of Campbell's, you know, the hero's journey. And I think you take it like one step further in terms of analyzing story structure when you talk about what you, what, you know, Freytag's pyramid and the relationships between characters and, and all this kind of stuff, which I think, again, it, it's a good companion to the kick-ass writer because the kick-ass writer forces one to ask the questions that follow kind of the, the philosophy you describe in, in Damn Fine Story. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they, hopefully they play well together. So I want to talk about those because you give really great advice. But just real quickly, you've done every kind of writing. You've written for comic books. You've written all these different genres. I just want to get some background. Like, how did you get started? Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, that origin story stuff. I yes. was, uh, you know, I obviously wanted to be a writer from a very early age, and I didn't know how to do that. And I was trying to write books, novels, and uh, I was failing at doing so. I was chasing the wrong idea for what, you know, my book should be. I was trying to chase what, what I thought the market would want. I was trying to chase what I thought other writers would do. It just wasn't working out. And so in the meantime, then I wrote, uh, I, I, I used to play uh, pen and paper role-playing games, stuff like D&D, but in this case, some horror games by a company called White Wolf Game Studios. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to be doing this kind of foolish pastime where I'm, you know, gaming with buddies and, and, and slinging some dice on a table... Uh, what if I could also get paid to do that? And so I applied for a freelancer uh, assignment at White Wolf. Um, and you had to write like a thousand words as to what this game meant to you, this game, hunt, uh, monster hunting game. Uh, and I knew they were kind of a little pretentious. So I wrote a sort of pretentious thousand word essay about the internal and external loci of fear. And it was sort of, it, and it worked. Somehow it worked. I totally uh, bullshitted my way into that job. And uh, from there, I, I kept, I you know, I just kept getting assignments because I would, do the work quickly, and I would do the work cleanly. I don't know if it was any good, but I, I did the, the job. And so they kept bringing me back, which was great. So I did that for about 10 years, and I was still failing to meaningfully write books. I had one novel that I would get uh, about 75% of the way through, and it was sort of one of those books where if you've ever walked into a room and you've forgotten why you've gone into that room, uh, it was that book. I would get about you know, 75% through. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> it's sort of like, really, I have no purpose in this book. I can't, I can't bring it home. So I, uh, I, I always joke that I did what any novelist at that point would do, which is I won a screenwriting competition. And uh, in the <laughs> screenwriting competition, the, the prize was a mentorship uh, with a screenwriter, a known screenwriter guy who had written uh, the Grudge films and a few other adaptations. And that was actually his, his uh, expertise was on adapting pre-existing material uh, from the page to the screen. And so I really was like, I even told him early on, I was like, I just want you to help me adapt my piece of shit novel that's unfinished to a screenplay. And I'm just going to use the screenplay as an outline to get to the next novel. Like, I just want to write, I want to finish this as a novel and I'm going to use the screenplay as an outline. So you're going to help me do that. Uh, and he was like, yeah, okay. I mean, sure. So he kind of helped me get to that point. And um, not only then did that help me clarify my novel writing process. Uh, and it was actually the first book that I sold, uh, the one that resulted from that. But then I ended up also uh, finding a writing partner and a guy named Lance Weiler. And we um, uh, wrote a bunch of digital sort of film stuff. And we had a, uh, uh, we, we had a script that got us to the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. And then the following year, we had a short film at Sundance, which was pretty exciting. So uh, yeah, it was kind of, it's just been a sort of a janky zigzag of a career, but I think that's often true for writers. Well, well, let me ask you about the, the game writing, because this is the one format I'm really unfamiliar with. 
Like, what does it mean to, and these are role-playing games, they're not computer games. What does it mean to, to write a game? Yeah, that's the weird question, isn't it? So if you're writing a book or a film, but I mean, really a book, like let's talk about a book as a, as a sort of a, an object. Um, it's an object of ego because I'm saying like as a storyteller, this, this thing matters. It's my narrative and I'm going to put it all in here in this, you know, 300 to 800 pages. And I think it's important enough and interesting enough that someone will buy it and read through those uh, considerable pages. Whereas a uh, game is sort of the opposite. I'm, you know, you're there trying to write rules and narrative materials, almost like narrative Lego bricks. I'm trying to give you, trying to upend that toy box for you and saying, look at all these toys and you can use these things to tell your own story. So it's almost in the opposite of that. It's taking away the ego. It's like trying to put uh, those tools and those skills in the hands of sort of nascent burgeoning storytellers at the game table and just so they can have fun. So it's really a, a, it was a big shift for me to change from game writing to, you know, more focused narrative stuff. It kind of broke my brain for a little while. Do, do you think that game writing helped you later on with world building in science fiction? So a key, a key skill for science fiction is you're not on Earth in many cases, and you have to literally build the world and make a realistic yeah. world that says that, that readers could come in and say, okay, this is not a fake world. This is not the Truman Show. This is like a real planet with history and people and civilization. So it has to feel like the earth, but it's not. Right, but it wasn't, it wasn't game writing that taught me that. It was actually just gaming itself because at the game table, uh, and actually teaches you a lot about storytelling because when you're at the game table and you're running a game, as the, the, whether it's a dungeon master or a storyteller or a game master, whoever the game refers to it, um, it's your job to keep everyone entertained, right? And to let them have these characters and to create moments for those characters that are engaging and surprising and terrifying and sad or happy or whatever it is. So, you know, with world building, you can't sit there and go on and on about like every sconce and every, you know, tapestry. You've got to like cut to the chase because people are, they're staring at you. They're trying to like get the story going. And if you waste too much time with world building, you're going to bore the hell out of them and they're going to, you know, not come back for the next session. So, uh, and I think that's true in novels as well. You're really trying to not, you're trying to give them what they need to move the story forward. You're not trying to overwhelm them with, you know, rich texture and details unless, if they don't need that. Because um, for me, that's just, you run the risk of really boring them and kicking them out of the story. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny with novels, I always feel most strongly about a book if there's purpose to writing so descriptively and with such, you know, powerful metaphors and so on. Like contrast something like The Old Man in the Sea, you know, by obviously by Hemingway with Gravity's Rainbow by Pynchon. Oh yeah. In, in Old Man in the Sea, if he used overly descriptive language or metaphors, it wouldn't make sense because it's roughly from the point of view of an old man who's been fishing for 70 years. <laughs> right. So it wouldn't be like this guy would have a big vocabulary. In fact, you know, Old Man in the Sea is written at a, a fourth grade reading level, and yet it was powerful enough to catapult Hemingway to the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize. So, you know, so I, I think that's an important part of writing skill is matching the, the, the structure of the language itself with the plot of the novel. Yeah, and genre and the needs of the audience and what the audience's expectations might be because of the genre, because of the, the stories you're telling. Right, like 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 take John Grisham as as an example. For all we know, he could be, you know, the best, 
you know, writer of language ever, but that wouldn't fit in, in the context of a legal thriller. He right. has to just basically go from plot point to plot point. And I'm oversimplifying, but it wouldn't make sense for him to write a, 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 a very poetic legal thriller. <laughs> then now I want to see him try. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what a poetic legal thriller looks like. Right. So, so what separated your first published novel, which um, I, I have to say I haven't read, it's Double Dead. Uh, wh- oh, what- yeah, technically that's a work for hire book. No, Blackbirds is my first original actual fiction. Okay, so what, what separated that from like earlier books where you felt like you just weren't connecting with, with the, the, the story? Uh, Blackbirds, I stopped kind of giving as much of a, a damn about it. Like I, uh, it sounds strange, but you, you know, you care a lot about the things you write. Um, and sometimes you can care too much. I always say that, you know, even autonomous behaviors are difficult if you think them, uh, overthink them. Like, I mean, if I think about breathing or if I think about sleeping, I can guarantee you I'm going to have trouble breathing or trouble sleeping if I'm thinking about them. Um, and writing is that way too. Sometimes if you think too hard about it, it becomes a thing. That's kind of how you get, or one of the ways you can get really jammed up on it. So Blackbirds, I had had so many tries and so many kind of misses on what I thought was a good book. I just, I wasn't really writing my books. And so with Blackbirds, I was like, well, I don't care anymore. I don't think I'm really ever going to get published. And I, so I want to write the book that I want to write. It's, it's my turn now. Um, I'm not going to worry about the market. I'm not going to worry about expectations for agents or editors or whatever. And I just sort of threw it all at the wall. And I broke a lot of the rules and things you weren't supposed to do. And I just like, well, I was like, well, screw it to hell with it. Uh, and it turns out that, that that was the right way to go. And it, it sort of became um, the ethos behind some of my writing going forward was, you know, not to say you don't have to think about an audience and not to say you don't have to think about a market at all, but you're really best starting on the that first foot um, of accepting your own self as the first audience and just being like, what do I, what's the story I want to tell? Obviously, like the world is full of books. It doesn't need any more, really. In the grand scheme of things, we could all have enough books right now to read until the end of our lives without ever having any more made. Uh, so if I'm going to do this, why? Why would I do that? And it's because I want, you know, there's something I feel is missing or there's something like I feel like I have a thing I want to talk about or tell. Oh, I want to write that down. Um, if, you know, well, I'm sorry. What was that last thing? It was so good. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll, I'll yeah. listen to it. Yeah, everybody write that. Yeah, everybody write it that. It it's basically why. Like, why would you? Be, it's very important, this notion, and I think people need to understand this, that you have to say something different. Yep. Like you just said, there's there's a billion books already. There's two million books were published last year. So you kind of have to add to, you have to add something new Yeah. to, to basically say, this is why someone should read this is because it's new. And the other thing is what I think also writers, they can get hung up so much on things being original, right? This needs to be new and original when realistically the, there are no new or original stories, but what there is is something that has never before existed, which is the author. That author has, you know, is a weird confluence of ideas and experiences uh, from birth to the point where that novel is written um, and that is the fingerprint. And I don't mean that every writer is a special precious snowflake, but I do mean like you're a, you are your own person and no one else can be you. So even if you try to retell an old existing story, as long as you open those floodgates, uh, it sounds cheesy, but if you sort of like open up the stuff inside of you and you put who you are on the page and all of the things that make you, you, uh, then it is guaranteed to be a new and original thing because it's a perspective no one else can possibly have because it's yours. 
I, I really believe that because, uh, you know, so, so my own writing kind of comes out of, I used to write about um, financial stuff a lot. So I would write for the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I was writing um, articles every day. And there would be a little bit of personality in there, but, you know, it'd be mostly about kind of things that were happening in the world and my interpretation of them. But I would see other writers who, they just had too much ego in, in the writing. You know, they would talk about their achievements, their accomplishments, and and have that veer into their interpretations of, of financial events. And I feel like when you open yourself up and find your flaws and your fears and your vulnerabilities yes. as well, then that's really what people relate to in characters, even if, even whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction, because in a nonfiction, the character could be me if it's a narrative nonfiction. And I think you do that by saying what's bothering you in this yeah. situation. Right, yeah, and it, taking ego out of it and sort of accepting a lot of those flaws and frailties and, uh, you know, anxieties. God, my every book I write is like a blender of whatever whatever anxieties I've got going on right there, and it's just a smoothie of, uh, of those fears and concerns. And so, like, in, in Blackbird, this is about a girl who, and I feel like you started with the concept. So, like, what would be, like, every person you touch you see their eventual, yeah, you see exactly what their eventual death would look yep. like. That's such a great concept. And I, and I, and like you said, no story is new. I bet you millions of people maybe have had like yeah. that concept, but, but you, you start with this concept and why did you give that power to uh, a young girl? Uh, I don't know precisely why it just felt like that's who the voice belonged to someone who was um, a little more vulnerable, uh, who was sort of out, hanging, you know, loose like a, like a, a, a tooth uh, without the enamel. Um, she's just out on the road and has no home and has no, her, you know, her mother has forsaken her and she's just lost. And I thought, um, you know, it was interesting to see her uh, evolve from that person to a person of more power and a person of more understanding and, you know, still sort of accomplish what she was trying to accomplish um, and become a person who's a little less selfish too. She starts out as this sort of selfish, uh, almost vicious person person and it uh, the books sort of humanizes her uh, despite uh, her going deeper and deeper into this sort of supernatural thing so so for you what is what what does a, a book look like at the outset like so you've already discussed for instance in this book there was a concept who does what type of person does this concept best fit and then obviously there's got to be a story a, a plot that moves forward and the character also has to move forward are those like kind of the the basic elements of the book? Yeah, I mean, in terms of actual process, like uh, very early on when I had that um, mentorship with the screenwriter, with Steven Susco, you know, one of the first things he said was like, "Well, you're going to need to outline," and I was like, "Oh no, I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I don't outline. That's stupid. I don't like we not like maybe in Hollywood you have to outline, but like in us novelists, we you know listen to." the galloping of horses on the distance. And we, we talk to trees, like what, what, what the sycamores say. And that's my novel. And, uh, he's like, no, yeah, well, how's that working out for you? So, uh, I, I, at that point did sort of hunker down over a course of a few days and banged out an actual outline. And, um, it was miserable work, but, uh, at the end of the outline, I had a story where I didn't before that, you know, before then I was trying to write this book and I would, it would unspool, uh, you know, halfway or 75% through. And then now I, I had like a clear line to an ending. So I well, learned mostly for me that I needed outline, but the, some people take that story and assume that also means they need outline. But really the lesson of the story is that I, uh, my process wasn't working. So I needed to change my process. 
What, what are the elements of a good outline? I have no idea. Every outline I write is a completely different being, and it depends on if uh, you know the publisher or someone needs to read it or if it's just for me. If it's just for me, it's not fit for human consumption. It's a, a chaos manifesto. Um, but if it's for them, then it's a little more proper you know, uh, synopsis of the story. But I, I always figure, so an outline has to have kind of all the typical beats of a story that readers are prepared for, publishers are prepared for, editors are prepared for. So whether that's the arc of the hero or, or other models, it's got to have those beats. But then also it has to have, and it has to have, you know, what you've spoken about and, and what every writer's spoken about is, you know, the character has to move move forward or accomplish something, has to want something every step of the way. And, you know, the plot changes whether they get or do not get what they want. But I always also feel writing is a little bit of a magic trick. Yeah. And uh, you have to surprise at least twice. Mm -hmm. You have to pull the rabbit out of the hat and everyone claps. And then you have to do something else that is like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, the rabbit has to become a hat again or something. Yeah, something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's always tricks to it. And, uh, you know, sometimes those tricks are ones you don't even plan for. That's the cool part when that happens is that's when the magic trick stops feeling like a magic trick and feels like a little more old world magic, like real magic spell sorcery kind of stuff. Even though it's not, um, you know, if you line up these characters and you give them things they want and you give them problems and you give them a solution to those problems, but a solution that they can't achieve easily without uh, obstacles and fears and, and dangers in their way, um, and you line up other characters to do the same, and they all kind of march toward each other in the labyrinth, and then you end up with, like I said, something unexpected. And um, that magic, both the trick and the sorcery, live in where it's unexpected. And sometimes you are marching along, even even if it's according to an outline or not, um, you march along and you discover something you didn't decide would go in there. And you just things, it's just like the tumblers in a lock suddenly click and a door opens, and that's that's the new story. And, and the, the danger of surprise, though, is that it could be too much of a surprise. So people are like, oh, he just put that in. It, it takes the reader just out to of be the shocking. story. Just to be shocking. Yeah. yeah. So you, and, need to, and, you need a line. You need to be the type of thing that when the, the surprise hits, they have to see like, oh, I should have seen this coming. Or, I, or they could have seen it coming. That's also fine, too. Sometimes readers want to see something coming. Uh, but always, if you can always give them just a little extra turn of the knife, too, is always uh, a thing. But that's the key of making it organic. Because you, you hate watching like a, a movie or a TV show or reading a book, and a character does something inconsistent with what you know of them. And it only feels like it's there to move forward the, the plot. And it's why I think you don't really start with plot as in like an external structure. You start with plot uh, in the way that just as human beings make up history, right? History is not a thing that happens to us. It's a thing that we make happen. Plot is not a thing that happens to characters, but it's a thing that they are making happen. They're worms chewing dirt, and you really sort of want them to have that uh, agency in the story. And if they have agency and they act according to it, hopefully the surprises you bring are organic and true. Like what's, what's an example where, uh, on a book you've written, where you're particularly proud of, the surprise. Oh, that's a good one. Um, Wanderers is, I, I mean, I won't spoil the surprises, but every, I wrote Wanderers almost like it was a series, uh, a full television series in a single book. So like every, you know, part in the book, which is multiple chapters sort of broken out, um, I treated like a, a season of television. 
And so just as every season of television leaves you with those like sort of those moments where the story has changed and you've, you've pivoted in a way that's shocking and you've revealed new information and it's forced the characters into a new uh, realm. Um, every part ends with that. I really try to orchestrate another turn of the knife. So, uh, you know, it keeps everybody guessing and the mystery is compelling and it, it forces you to the next page, hopefully. And, and, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, like, what's what's a TV series, for instance, that you've loved over the past twenty years? Because I, I sort of have this theory that there was a there's a golden age of television that essentially started around two thousand four and probably ended around twenty fifteen. And yeah. you know, if you think about all the great series like Breaking Bad, Mad Men, um, you know, maybe The Wire, uh, you know, Lost. And yeah. on and on, they're all between those times where there was huge budgets allowed for series. Every it's it's the period when seasons became, you know, full arcs of a story as opposed to each episode being standalone. And it's before this time we're in now, where there's so many shows out there that it's a little harder. The let's say the average writing quality has gone a little bit down, even though they're still good shows. But like, what's what's a good series where you can point to um, a surprise that felt right for you and, and also difficult in the sense that the writer had to keep fooling the reader into not knowing the surprise would happen and yet lay the clues for it. Yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad's a good one. Avatar, the last airbender is a good one. There's a good twist mm. in there. Um, there's a show that's uh, out now on Netflix, um, another cartoon called Kipo and the age of wonder beasts. And it does a lot of really fun stuff with, again, every end of every season, it's, twisting your expectations and she's a character who is relentlessly optimistic. And so that drive of hers to essentially make friends with every uh, villain who pursues her um, makes for a very interesting story and unexpected because that is not traditionally how we see our protagonists, especially in a sort of action-y heroic cartoon. It's always like defeat the evil, defeat the bad guys. And uh, it's just not really how it works in that story. And it constantly upends your expectations as to what's going to happen next because of that. Well, so in Breaking Bad, what would you say were so like, like the obvious thing in Breaking Bad was he, you realize it's not just to make money for his family, it's what he's he doing. Is. Yeah. Yeah. It's who he is. And he becomes closer and closer to that until it's like full circle. Right. Um, but there's but also even like, if you want a shock moment when, you know, when Gus Fring walks out and then half his, body is gone. Oh my God, that was great. Right, you know, yeah, that's just a good sort of a visceral shock moment uh, in that story. And even when, when Gus Fring is revealed to be Gus Fring, right, right. you know, he, you know, that was an interesting moment because at first it looks like he's just like a manager of this chicken place. Yeah. And then it turns out he's the mastermind. He's the so mastermind. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could have guessed, but you wouldn't have known. And, but it makes sense once it's known. Yes, precisely. Uh, so, so that's it. Cause I always think that's the difficulty because you know, the surprise so well as you're writing it, but you have to almost pretend like you don't know, cause you have to make sure you have to ask yourself, what's the reader feeling at this right. point? Well, that's maybe why you the, don't, I don't know. The really wonderful ones are the ones, as I said, you didn't plan for, because then if you didn't plan for it and you find something, I mean, something I try to do whenever I'm writing, I always say, well, I'm planning on writing it this way, but what if it goes this way instead? And uh, sometimes when you do that, because if you surprise yourself, you you can be fairly sure that you're going to be surprising the reader as well. So, um, 
you know, I just want to, I want to just real quickly touch on what's the difference between the different genres. Like, what would you say is the difference between what makes a horror novel? Well, see, that's the one of those tricky questions because genre is just sort of some nonsense we made up. Like, it's it's a, it's a marketing category, really. At the end of the day, right? Um, you know, and the the sort of the breakdown in genres doesn't always make sense if you uh, believe them to be rigid, because like science fiction and fantasy can tell the exact same stories, but it's all about setting, time time period and setting. You know, science fiction requires obviously to be more science based, and you know, if it's in space, it's probably science fiction. If it's in the future, it's probably science fiction. Uh, fantasy tends to be more like, you know, there's going to be some dragons or an unusual realm or portals or whatever it's going to be. You can mix them and merge them, but generally speaking, they're based on setting and time time frame. And horror is all about emotion, and mystery is all about emotion. Um, so while you certainly have tropes and sort of things that earmark them, you know, there's no reason you can't have a uh, horror fantasy or a horror science fiction. Wanderers is certainly what I would consider a science fiction horror novel. You know, there's no reason you can't have a mystery uh, set in a fantasy. In fact, many novels are mysteries by their sort of very nature. Many novels are kind of horror novels. They have moments of terror and horror, and certainly they have mysteries uh, baked into them uh, because that's what keeps people reading. So um, the more we break out the genres, you know, the more you start to see that they don't, they're not really on even footing as to what their differences are, um, which makes it interesting as long as you don't find them uh, rigorous rule books as to what you need to cleave to. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, 
ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. I like your comment in Kick-Ass Writer that uh, beginnings are for assholes. <laughs> yeah. Describe what that means, because I think this is very interesting, and I think beginnings hold back a lot of writers. Yeah, it's that whole, like, oh, we're going to start a new comic book series slash movie, and so we need to start when they get their powers, and it's the same thing every time. Like, origin stories, um, not to say you cannot do a good origin story well. You could do anything well. Anything that um, people might not think would work or, or, or should exist can be done well. Um, but a lot of origin stories and a lot of beginnings contain information that is essentially unessential, right? It's like they're just, you're kind of just spinning your tires, doing the sort of, rote, well, this is how the person became to be who they are. And you can, most times, you know, especially a really good writer, you can start, you know, 25% in and just cut off all that stuff and just sum it up in a paragraph or two and everyone gets it. Like there's no you know, make it more vibrant and more present as opposed to this, like, kind of like, I get it. Like, we were all born. We're all, you know, kids at one day. Like, we don't need the origin story for every uh, every little thing. And it's why prequel stories are so dangerous. It's not to say a prequel is, again, automatically bad, but you're so, um, first of all, you're narrow, you're, you're, you, you, you have a narrow narrative that can only end where the next story already began. You can't change anything. So, the story is essentially written and it feels like to the audience that this stuff is destined as opposed to the way stories should feel, which is loose and uncertain and dangerous. And it no longer feels that way because like we know where we're going. We've seen the bullseye. We already know the dart hits it. So now we just have to watch the dart in flight. And the prequel is just watching a dart in flight. And it's not that interesting. And so you run the risk of telling these sort of rote beginning. And, you know, with the Star Wars prequels or other prequels, it's always like, well, how did this character get that special gun or how why do they wear those pants all the time and it becomes just an an accumulation of trivia just this sort of uh um we're just trying to hit the menu of like what do the fans want to see well they want to see why he has his special catchphrase so let's write a whole scene that's about his special catchphrase and it becomes just a way to kind of make money and waste time and it feels you know a little uh, yeah like like star wars you do get this sense that we've been plopped down in the in the middle of a story yeah like there's references to Luke's father, 
There's this weird old guy, you know, Ben Kenobi, right. who has this whole backstory. There's this guy in this black suit, you know, Darth Vader. Who the hell is he? And you never really know the origins of these things, at least in that initial first movie, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. They they start start you in the middle, and it feels great. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you're doing an outline, you have to have some sense of what kind of the origin stories are of all the characters. But does that take place in your outline, or are you just starting with, okay, here's scene one, here's scene two, and, and so on? Uh, it can. It can start in the outline. Again, if it's just for me, it may or may not be in there. Um Sometimes I'll just do documents about characters and not really about plot. Um, but it doesn't, it, just because I'm talking about it in the outline is not uh, an indication that that's where I will begin the story. And when you make this outline, you've also referred to how sometimes the story can go in other ways. Mm-hmm. It, does that, is that okay with the outline? Do you, do, are you going to say, okay, the outline's now out the window? Or oh, it's rewrite? essential. It's essential to the outline. Every good outline is a document of lies. Um, right. And I'm all for that. Like, you know, it's... It's like driving across country. You know, if I find a, a, a cool exit to take, or I find that one highway is closed, you know, that's the journey. And and so so, but like, what if you're writing the book and you realize, oh, there's a be- this better direction to go than what I said in the outline? Well, you you, you go in it, and that's and that's how it goes. Do you rewrite the outline then? No. Well, I have, but generally not. No, generally, I'll, uh, you know, you kind of start to fear, and sometimes you'll come back to the outline because you'll see a way to make it all line up. Um, and sometimes you just be like, well, we're in uncharted waters now and we'll see where we go. And if your characters are true and you know who they are, uh, it tends to still move in the direction. So in the book, Damn Fine's Story, uh, you talk about Freytag's Pyramid, which is named after this, um, 1800s German playwright. And again, he, it's, it's like almost a different way of looking at Joseph Campbell's, the, the hero's journey, but this is the one that's attractive to you in terms of how you think about story? Uh, not necessarily attractive to me. It's, it's just the, it's the, the sort of proto model. I think there's um, a lot of value in leaving that model. Like you start there, it's like um, training wheels on a bike. Like you kind of start there, but then you realize you don't need it uh, as you go on. Um, it's just a, a very simple mechanism to understand the rise and fall of sort of narrative. Um, but generally speaking, good stories are way uh, squirmier um, than that, you know, what they call the sort of male ejaculatory arc of just like up and down again. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that because let's talk about uh, Freytag's Pyramid and then how it gets a little messy yeah. in between. So, so you know, Freytag basically says there's seven steps. There's exposition, yep. inciting incident, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, yep. denouement. So I don't really understand what most of those things mean, <laughs> at least at first sure. glance. Yeah. Like, like exposition sounds almost like prequel. Yeah, it's it's information. That's what it is. It's just information. But, but exposition exists all throughout. Realistic. And 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 then inciting incident would be like something you know, is, something's happened, yeah. Right, like like Luke's aunt and uncle die in Star Wars. Yeah. But the thing is also stories are full of inciting incidents. Every like I always my preferred way to look at it is that there's a status quo, right, that exists before the story begins. And the story begins when something has changed the status quo. And then good stories keep settling and then changing the status quo. They keep creating a, a new normal and then shattering it again. I mean, you can see that throughout Star Wars that this constant sense of, especially with the, you know, moving into the Empire Strikes Back, um, you know, the expected, you know, arc of someone like 
you know, Han, who's going to pay off his debts and screw over the rebellion, he, he keeps sort of changing that and keeps coming back. And Luke, you think Luke is this boy who wants to go destroy the empire, but and for, you know, to, to uh, vindicate his father's death. But of course, the reality is that Darth Vader is his father. Sorry, spoilers, everybody. Um, but <laughs> so they just keep kind of just keep twisting those, you know, upending. Every time you think like I'm on stable ground here, someone gets underneath you and makes you fall over again. And that's usually a, a good uh, when it comes to narrative. As long as it's not too often, you can't change the status quo every, you know, 10 minutes. What do you think of this um, idea? It's almost like a cliche, which is that if you get stuck searching around for an inciting incident or another incident to kind of change the status quo, you just kill someone. Uh, you can, yeah. I mean, and that can work, especially in certain models of story. That can totally work. It can also, um, you know, be a, 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 like a Band-Aid over a chest wound. You know, it's, you might actually have a bigger problem in the narrative. If you don't know what to do next, it might mean there's something early wrong um, that you need to fix. You need to kind of course correct earlier in the story to get you to where you need to be. Uh, but yeah, when in doubt, blow, blow something up or uh, kill somebody or find something dramatic and interesting that would sh shake it up a little bit. Yeah, and like, like for instance, you know, and I, I love taking Star Wars as an example because it feels to me like A, most people are aware yeah. of the story and B, it seems very classic yes. of uh, the arc of how many stories are. Right. You know, so so like for instance, Star Wars, almost the entire Star or um, the first half of Star Wars is almost like a movie unto itself, where they're trying to save Princess Leia, uh, you know, who's who's you know a prisoner in the in the mm -hmm. Death Star, and some some things are to further the plot, like oh, you know, the initial planet they're going to blows up, and you know, now they're being locked into the tractor beam of the the Death Star. But sometimes I always wonder when there's an action scene, you know, okay, now all the stormtroopers are chasing, you know, Luke and Han and Leia and there's guns firing back and forth. How do how do you make that not rote? Or or like at or like in a in the born identity or some story like that. How do you make a car chase or a fight scene not the same car chase I've seen in every other movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a mix of creating stakes. Like, like we, as long as we, the audience, know what is to be gained and lost, um, you know, gained if they win and lost if they fail, uh, that, that gives us stakes and it gives us tension. Um, there's also the aspect of, like, again, that status quo thing. You're, especially in an action scene or, or sequence, you're trying to constantly, you can always see it and you can sort of map it out whether in Star Wars or Fast and Furious or wherever you're seeing, you can see the thing where the hero starts to pull ahead and then all is lost and they're knocked back behind again just as they think they're gaining the upper hand, they're knocked to the ground, and there's this constant push or pull. So every time you think you know what the scene is trying to do and how you see it's balancing out, they imbalance it again. It just unbalances. So, you know, for me, it's just that that sort of magic trick of like constantly, it's misdirection, you know, I'll look over here and then I'm doing something over here. There's a lot of little like tricks you're just trying to, but you're mostly just trying to keep it interesting. Um, keep those stakes fresh and keep uh, people, you know, on their toes as to what's coming. Yeah, so so like, let's say um, you're driving people towards a climax. It always seems like there's a climax and then and then it starts over. So like he, they save Leia and you feel this huge sigh of relief, but now the But they're the trapped, stakes... yeah, but they're trapped. So now it's like they're close to getting her because they thought they've got her free, but now they're pinned in and they've got to go into 
a sewer, and in the sewer there's a monster, and in not only the monster, but the crushing walls. Yeah, you just sort of like ratcheting those. It's like you could feel like someone tightening a screw. Uh, and you're so you're almost like close to home. It's like, you know, it's like racing home for, you know, uh, an appointment or something. Like, I got to be home by five o'clock. And you're like, it's 4.58, I'm almost there. And then ahead, it's just all brake lights. And you're like, ah, and it's that kind of like that tension and frustration over like, we're almost home free. And now I don't know that we're going to make it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. It's It's even in kind of chase scenes or these action sequences, it's it's like this rising and falling tension. Mm-hmm. So like when they save Leia or they get her out of her, her prison cell and then they find kind of, and everybody's shooting at them, but they find like this exit and the audience almost breathes this huge sigh of relief. And then a few seconds later, the door, the, the, the walls start closing in. Yep. Yeah. And that's a good metaphor for a lot of the scenes. The walls start closing in. Yeah, there that's is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then even in, um, even at the final, so, so then they save Leia, they bring her back home, but then the stakes get, get raised again, which is that the Death Star is going to blow up their whole planet. Yep. And now it begins again, yep. where everybody's got to make decisions. You know, like you said, with Han Solo, he's got to make a decision. Luke's got to make a decision and think, and then, they figured out a plan, so you feel, oh, relief. They have a plan for destroying the Death Star, but the plan's not going so well. Yeah, right. So now it pulls back. So it's that rise and fall again. Yeah, and then you need the sort of the chaos of the character's convictions to sort of bring it home. Luke has to trust in the Force, and Han has to put aside his debts and his selfish nature and come save him. And So it's like a neat kind of that push and pull. It's always great. Yeah, I like that phrase, the chaos of the character's convictions. Because characters, characters mess everything up. That's the great thing about characters, right? Like you have this, the plot is going this way, but then the characters always want what they want and they, they need to do what they need to do and they are who they are. And, uh, you know, each one is like a Molotov cocktail thrown into the mess and you never really know. If you let that happen as a storyteller, um, that's often the most interesting thing. Yeah, because it's interesting. So so Luke, he at first... And, and I know we're going into the weeds of Star Wars, but most people most <laughs> no, people have either read it, it yeah. or, or or they know about it or 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 they can appreciate it. But uh, Luke at first doesn't want to, um, you know, pull up, you know, get rid of his equipment to see the right spot to to fire. He like rejects that. He he wants that's the status quo. We've got all this machinery, we got all this equipment. It's going to tell yep. him the right moment. He has to he has to trust basically this mythological thing. It's like someone saying, I'm not going to go for surgery. I'm just going to trust gonna in wait. Jesus yeah. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but then, then you realize almost like, and, and maybe I just realized it right now is that the whole story is him seeing glimpses that this idea of the force is more and more real than he thought. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what is able to convince him to, to trust this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's his, his instincts. Uh, and his, you know, he's finally accepting something about himself in the world at that moment. What does it mean, the final part of the arc of the hero, where, you know, after the climax, after things kind of end, you know, Joseph Campbell basically says the hero goes back to tell his story. Yeah, the hero returns. Yeah, and he returns with whatever he returns with, either the prize or... Uh, the the prize is destroyed or whatever it is he returns to tell. Uh, he returns changed and he comes to tell the tale. So um, 
that's always the interesting part is that sort of denouement kind of wrapping it all up and seeing seeing what it's done to them. I mean, I always like this part of the book where you, you learn how the characters have been changed either for the better or worse, sometimes both, usually both um, at the end of it. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting, again, like comparing Star Wars with, let's say, Breaking Bad. And with Breaking Bad, I won't reveal any spoilers, but Star Wars was just is just sort of a simple, he comes back and gets a medal mm -hmm. and... For all we know, that's it the end of the over. entire yeah, story. It could be it. And and with Breaking Bad, though, it really his coming back leads to a, because of his new realizations, it, it really leads to a whole new set of action sequences and and fear and so on. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and it's more complicated because that's a more um, emotionally mature, crunchier sort of narrative. And he's not even the the hero. I mean, he's the the protagonist. He's the agent of change. Uh, but he's certainly not the hero. Um, and so when you get into this sort of deeper um, briar tangle of, of who those characters are, you can do usually more interesting things. Something, you know, Star Wars, and no shade on Star Wars, obviously, is a little more chocolate vanilla. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you can mess with those flavors a little bit and you can, you know, I can make this chocolate a little darker or I can, you know, make this sort of a more exotic vanilla, but you're kind of getting those two core flavors. And it's the true thing too with, the Campbellian monomyth is it, that's really like your chocolate vanilla way of telling a story. Um, but if you start to kind of mess with it and start breaking those parameters and taking it all apart and then re putting it together again for your own needs and then letting characters be a little more complicated, um, as long as it feels true, uh, I think you get a somewhat more satisfying. It's almost like the difference between, you know, again, that chocolate and vanilla flavor versus like a seven-course dinner of molecular gastronomy. Like in the right hands, something that could be a little more complicated and layered um, can can stand the test of time. Yeah. So, so first off, I, once again, I really like this idea of kind of these sequences that up until now I thought were just these rote, almost boring sequences of you know a chase scene, a car scene. Uh, a fight scene, like in a, you know, again, I, I refer to the Bourne identity, but it could be, it could be any of these sort of fighting or karate oh, yeah, kind of movies. Mission Impossible, the new ones, yeah. Yeah, Mission true. Impossible. I really like this idea that even those scenes you could analyze by the the, the rising and falling action, the or the or the the winning and losing action. Yeah. is another way to put and what's it. What's on the, you know, like what's at stake? Like, uh, we want that object, but now the object is gone, or. You know, it's like it's the stakes of a character's life hanging in the balance. Whatever it is, watching that pendulum swing back and forth um, and how they time that. Really good scenes, um, you know, are they, I mean, those are like machines. Like they, they're they machines. They know what they're doing with those. Yeah, what do you mean by machines? Well, like it's, I mean, it's not like, uh, they're not winging it, right? I mean, you're not like, well, let's kind of just see where it goes. I mean, they're really like, orchestrating it, it, almost in the sense of it and it's a literal orchestra like they're really trying to keep all of those pieces together it's not simply a push and pull but it's also the timing of it and the the perfect moments to sort of tease out like how the hero will win or the hero will lose um they are they are very uh purposefully articulated yeah and and you know and this is to not only a lot of your points but points of of many writers is that it's not as much I would say the difference between a, a good sequence like that and a bad sequence like that is how much the rise and fall depends on the the personality of the character as we know it to that point. Yes. So for so for instance, 
like Luke, when he's rescuing Leia, uh, a little bit is that he's inexperienced mm -hmm. at what he's doing. Yeah. He doesn't know, unlike, unlike Obi-Wan Kenobi, who senses the whole map of the Death Star. <laughs> and so his, his challenges are different. Luke, you know, runs into a room and suddenly the, the, and they're chasing after him, but suddenly there's no way to get to, there's a, there's, there's emptiness. There's right. no way to jump to the other side right. because he's inexperienced. He didn't know that. Yeah, he doesn't, and he doesn't know what to do next. And so his, his life is more in danger because he's kind of an idiot. I mean, like loosely speaking, he's kind of a dumb-dumb at that point. Yeah. And, and that reflects what we know about him, his overall personality, which is that he rushes into things at that mm -hmm. point. He's not as cool like he is in Return of the Jedi. Yep. And he has to deal with that. Yeah. And then Han, so, for all of Han's experience, rushes into things just the same. He's he's more because he's brash and bold and doesn't care, but it's the same kind of problem. So like I said, these are characters with the chaos of their convictions. They're just doing almost crazy stuff, true to their characters, but crazy stuff. They're just running into scenes and be like, ah, and then they're running back out. And it's like, you know, it's almost like Keystone Cops, but a little more serious. Right. But even there, there's, there's nuance because... Like let's say the same scene I just described about Luke, he get he gets there and Leia even kind of makes fun of him, like yeah. you know some hero you are or whatever she says. Yeah, a little short where, to be a where, yeah. yeah, and 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 Han, you kind of could see him in the same scene, but he would be more like you wouldn't be able to tell that he's as flustered right. as Luke was because he, he kind of go, he rushes into a scene but uh, into a situation but sort of has faith that he'll work it yeah. out. So, so, and, and that we all, and that's kind of set up all along the way. Yeah. Good storytellers do that. Yeah. You know, another thing is too, I'm curious about how you deal with this. Like I see in some of your blog posts, you have very strong philosophies and opinions about life, politics, and so on. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. obviously that comes out in your books, but there's always the danger that it could come out too much. Yeah, so course. then the book becomes about preaching or the topic yeah. rather than the character. Yeah. And I think that's a huge danger. And I mean, it's something that I try not to do. I mean, even with Wanderers, which is a book, I mean, it has a certain point of view. I mean, I am still trying to have empathy for every character in it. Um, even the ones that I don't think are good. And even some of the protagonists and main characters are people I certainly wouldn't agree with or wouldn't want to hang out with. Um, they're different for me and they have different points of view. And uh, I think that's good to have that sort of mix of people and mix of point of view. I never want to preach to somebody. I don't want to um, hit them overhead with a message. I'm not even super concerned with a message. I think theme and stuff is one of those things that needs to live, uh, you know, in the, the sort of metaphor of a story as a house. Theme is one of those things that's behind the walls. It's, it's plumbing. It's, you know, conduits. It's not, it's not the decor. Um, you know, and I think theme is one of those things when it's best guessed at and not told. Um, and also is something that's debatable, um, even debatable to the author themselves. Sometimes I've, I've had books where people have told me things about the books and I was like, oh, oh, that totally makes sense. I didn't even think of that larger idea at play here. And they're like, and they kind of assumed I had written it that way, but I, I had not. Like what's an example from, you know, well-known movies or TV or fiction where, uh, uh, the theme is a little, like, like for instance, Breaking Bad, the theme is not so subtle. Like we know what the theme is. Yeah. He, you know, as we spoke about earlier, what, what's something where the theme might be a little more subtle? Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, you know, Breaking Bad on the one hand is, I think, well, some of the stuff is a little, 
over the head. Um, I also think be, once it makes the changes of, um, we know that he's not this guy anymore who, um, we know we know he's making a choice, right, as a character. Um, it's not about the cancer. And once he's in remission, he's still doing what he's doing. Um, I think the themes there get a little squirrelier with what the price of that is um, and with the, the type of person that he is. I don't think it's necessarily about the good versus evil or the corruption of man or whatever it may be. I think you can, you can have a more uh, dicier interpretation, but I think you can probably have a dice interpretation with anything. Um, Hunger Games, you know, all about sort of the, is it a, a, about revolution and the power of revolution? But obviously the revolution is compromised by the third book and there's a lot of really sort of a sticky, without spoiling anything, a lot of sticky sort of moral conundrums that come as a result of that and who people trust. Um, is it just that war is bad? I mean, that's a little too simple and obviously obvious, but not really enough uh, of a theme. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting sort of ways to sort of bat that back and forth. Yeah, in The Hunger Games, for instance, what's, um, you know, so Katniss is the, the main character. What, what's her growth in, in the series, do you think? Um, it, if the whole series, all three books? Yeah, or the first one or all three, whatever you want. Um, I mean, the first one is all about what? I mean, her sort of just trying to save her sister. Like, family is everything. She'll sacrifice herself to do it. But um, by the end, she becomes this massive symbol of a revolution, and then the revolution, to some degree, turns on her. Um you know, and so all of the things she thought she thought about her her own allies um, becomes more complicated, and the people that she turns out to be essentially used. Um, you know, it's a pretty and then the end of Mockingjay is rough as hell, and and you know seems to definitely be saying something about children being the uh, greatest sacrifice to war. Yeah, and I guess I guess there's also this other aspect. It's not so much theme, but it's almost like this Rubik's cube like puzzle. How does she avoid killing anyone? Right, and and so it becomes all these puzzles, include particularly the final scene where um, I'm trying not to give away spoilers, but it's a little bit. But uh, but it came, comes across naturally. It doesn't comes it doesn't come across as a series of Rubik's cube mm -hmm. style puzzles. No, they're because they're based in her character and her morals, um, not just like a. It's not just plot. Yeah, yeah, you know another well. And this is related to everything we've spoken about, but you describe it in a, in a different way in, in um, Kick-Ass Writer. Uh, you know, like take Breaking Bad. We, we were talking about he, you know, meaning Walter mm -hmm. White, but, but all of them, they all have you know, Hank, Jesse, his wife, yeah. uh, uh, they all have arcs where they're kind of moving forward on a personal yeah. level and have to make personal decisions. And I think that's kind of like a new thing in TV, not necessarily new in, in fiction, but this idea that across the arc of a season or a series, every single character has to has to move forward and have a resolution in some way, even if a temporary yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, like in the again in the in the eighties and nineties, even uh, every episode was standalone, so you wouldn't necessarily have, um, you know, every character wasn't as important yeah like usually it was the main character that was important and back then it was always the joke was tv was all middle right like you just sort of started magnum pi is this is who magnum pi is and when you end the series that's who magnum pi is nothing's really changed i mean even something like uh you know prestige golden age tv like sopranos at the end of the day nothing's changed for any of these characters <laughs> they're all kind of the same people they were madmen kind of these characters are who they are they're making um 
both narrative choices there and sort of character choices that say these characters are who they are and you can't change who you are. Um, every show is not that way. Breaking Bad, I think, does actually have some uh, both growth and shifts. Um, you know, so uh, Better Call Saul, too, as a sequel to that or prequel to that, shows a character who is changing and morphing. Um, he's not necessarily the same person at the beginning as he was at the end. Uh, Lost, I think Lost like, is a good example of a character, you know, character, as much as a mess as it is in the middle, um, it does change who some of these people are by the end there. And, and it's almost like a, a meta narrative about TV storytelling um, as to whether or not people change or what their, uh, how their past impacts them and so on and so forth. So yeah, tell me about that because Lost actually is my all-time favorite TV series. Okay, good deal. So like, how does, how does, like Jack is, oh, Jack's almost like, hey, I'm pro-science, you guys are anti-science. <laughs> like we sort of see these stories play out now. Uh, uh, and then obviously towards the end, you know, things change a little yeah. bit, but, you know, and, and until it's almost reversed and then there's, of course, the surprises along the way with who we perceive to be on the other yes, side of all of this. The uh, so I guess actually yeah, I'm, I'm answering my own question <laughs> yeah. like I'm sort of seeing now. Yeah. Um, but okay, here, here's an interesting question, which I saw in Lost, and I also see sometimes with Neil Gaiman um, books. Like, have you read the Sandman comic series? Sure, sure. So well, it's been a while, but so, yeah, sure. Yeah, Lost and, and and the Sandman remind me of of similar challenges where they present more and more questions and plot twists mm -hmm. about what's going on, and then you start to realize towards the end, how are they gonna? wrap these things up. Well, part of the problem with Lost, and I can't speak to how Gaiman wrote um, Sandman, though you can maybe imagine it's in there because comics being comics, um, you know, Lost didn't know when it when it was going to be allowed to end. As long as it kept being successful, like ABC wanted to just keep making it. And when you want to keep making something, that's that problem with all middle. You can never really get to an end. It's like, you know, Zeno's paradox. You just keep getting getting halfway to an ending of a, a TV show and it never really gets to stop until they cancel it, at which point you have to sort of hastily cobble together an ending. So Lost kind of had like an ending figured out, but the middle just kept telescoping out um, and they kept getting a season after season and you had to sort of like put more things in, put more twists and turns because you can't not have twists and turns in Lost. So um, it becomes, you're building almost like a labyrinth and that labyrinth gets a little more difficult to traverse and suddenly you know, the end, which actually I love the end of Lost. But um, by the way, I love the end of Lost as yeah, well. I'm, I know, I don't know if we're in the minority there, though every time I talk about it, everyone's like, I agree with you. Uh, so I don't think people dislike the ending as much as people think they do. Um, I think it's a, a pitch perfect end to that show, actually. Um, yeah, and then, uh, of course, did you see the, you know, the, the mini three-minute sequel where, no, you know. I don't think I did. You know, Hurley was the new yeah, guy. The new and, guy. And they have him. Right. And they have him going around on the earth, kind of mm -hmm. doing things. Um, it, the addition of that three-minute sequel kind of nicely, to me, tied it up it a little bit. Encapsulates the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. There you, go. Um, you know, and but but all of this, the idea that each character now has they're, they're going through their arc of the hero or Freytag's pyramid or whatever you want to call it. I think in in Kickass Writer, you have a nice way of saying it, which is that villains have mothers. Yeah. So, so it's not like Darth Vader is just this, you know, um, archetype of evil. Yeah. You know, he literally has a mother, and that makes you look at him in a different way. And if you think of each character having a mother, 
That's the, that's like a useful technique. Yeah, it humanizes them. Even as inhuman as they are, there's something human about them. Um, they came from somewhere. They are who they are. I mean, they, you know, a lot of the, especially in fiction, I don't know about real life sometimes, I think it, it's not true, but uh, in fiction, even the worst people often have a conviction, right? They have the convictions to back that up. They, they see themselves as the hero of their own story. Um, in real life, sometimes I think people can be just evil and terrible, but in fiction, we have to, we have to do more. We have to make that work. I wonder, do you think in real life, so, so I think, I think narrative nonfiction works a lot like fiction, at least in terms of the story, it's still a story. You're still dealing with characters that are not you, but that you could relate to. Um, and so similar things have to happen in, in reading a narrative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Do you think, do you think there are characters that are purely evil? And I know there's a narrative about, you know, current day politics where sure. it's easy to say, you know, you have 80 million people saying, you know, one side's purely evil and another 80 million people saying the other side's purely evil and they might both be right. They might be both wrong. They One side might be right. One side might be well, wrong. One side is definitely but... not good in this. <laughs> you know, there's some, there's and some I, shit I, going I, down, but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of like, it's tricky because in fiction, it is useful to think of like, well, everyone has mothers and so we should try to understand them. And I don't think that's necessarily untrue with our fellow humans, but there also comes a point when you can overhumanize something and be like, well, if I excuse an evil act because they have a mother, because they're, they think they're doing the right thing. And, um, you know, it can be useful for helping you understand where it comes from, but not necessarily useful if you're trying to figure out how to stop it. Yeah. So, okay. So, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you on this point. Okay, so, yeah. so, uh, uh, take, take Donald Trump as an example. Sure. And let's just say it's, it's nighttime at the white yeah. house. Everything's settled down for the day. It's just Trump and Melania and she, Hates his guts yeah, for sure a million. Yeah, I'm sure she's a thousand miles and, away from him emotionally or physically at that point. Right, and and he has everybody in the world attacking him, correctly or incorrectly. Let's even say correctly. Yeah. He's everyone in the world attacking him, but he still wants a little bit of love and a little bit of human contact. Sure. How would you con knowing that as exposition? Yeah. How would you continue that as just even like a short story? This is just one night in the White House. I wouldn't because I I couldn't I couldn't do it. Not with him. I would teach just to. I can't even imagine. I, I mean, everything we have seen of him, uh, like the, if we're to paint him as a character, right? Not just necessarily a person, but like a character. Every character aspect we have of him is um, somewhere between brutish and uh, clownish. So his attempts to get love are, are not going to go well. <laughs> They're going to be either forced or um, comical or awkward or something. There's going to be something in there that, uh, first of all, I wouldn't want to run, right? Because I'll... I'll feel gross afterward. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't know what you would, how. And, well, I put your own, put your own needs in that character with his background. So for instance, I'm just imagining this and, and you know, and, and you and I probably feel the same about all these things, but I'm imagining it as like, he's just been attacked over and over and over. He's just been impeached. He's, you know, some people are telling the truth about him. Some people are lying about him. Who knows? And he, he just, he doesn't know how to break through to Melania. So he just says, listen, I, there's things I can't apologize for. There's things that have, are, have so much ugly history between the two of us, but I'm an, I just don't know what to do this moment emotionally 
to move forward. Can I talk to you? I guess, but you're um, you're envisioning a, a definitely a fictional version of who I imagine him to be. I, uh, uh, having dealt with people who I consider to be um, sort of malignant narcissists in the past, I don't necessarily think mm. it goes that kindly um, for him. I think it's usually he wants what he wants, and when he doesn't get it, he gets it somewhere else. Um, and, and so, like for instance, you know, on a night like this, he might just say, "Well." Screw everybody. They're all wrong. I'm just going to go to sleep, and tomorrow we're going to have kick ass. Well, yeah, and he'll go and he'll tweet about it or tweet anger in a different direction because he can't. He he doesn't have a grasp of his emotions well. I mean, you know, if that's if you want to hum, humanize him, that's probably where it comes from. Is that there's something possibly literally wrong? I don't necessarily mean in a demented capacity from his age, but there's definitely he's obviously incapable of ever apologizing. He's obviously incapable of ever not taking credit for something. Um, and so that comes from somewhere, uh, either abuse, uh, and there's certainly evidence that his father was no, no good person, and um, I can't imagine how his mother was. Uh, so, you know, that comes from somewhere. Either that or it's a simple chemical imbalance, and he's a man trapped in his own prison. Um, that's as close as I think you can get to sort of humanizing and writing him as a sort of a fictional construct of and trying to get to the heart of it. Um, but, you know, when it comes to this sort of... Uh, situation you know it comes down to the thing of like i don't know what that gives us um outside of a narrative exercise yeah no it's interesting because so what, what you're almost saying is that because he can't find any way to connect emotionally and that might be this narcissistic quality caused by various things his his only outlet at two in the morning to fill this hole is to get on twitter yeah and get the dopamine hit of 100,000 people liking, right. you know, MAGA exclamation point. Right. And he, he gets to maintain in his own head that he's the, the sort of king. And, you know, Melania rejected him. Well, what does she know, blah, blah, blah. Or what do the, what do the, the media know? Or what does the Democrats know? No one understands. And there's no self-reflection. There's no like, well, what if I change? What if I change who I am? Or what if I try a different tactic? What if I compromise? That's never the thing that reaches his mind. It's never like, what if I do a different thing? It's always like, well, I'm going to keep, he's, he's the classic version of like, well, I've dug myself into a hole. I guess I'd better keep digging. Uh, and so there's never a point when he's like, well, I, what if I try to climb out? Cause that's too much effort. Um, and I don't just mean from like a, a, him being lazy. I mean, from that sort of narcissistic character perspective, that to have to climb out of the hole would have to admit you didn't mean to dig yourself in there. And so you keep digging down because that's what you are trying to tell the world that you did on purpose. Yeah, be I yeah, because it seems like if I were him, if let's let's say he's just a fictional character and I'm I'm thinking this story, like after he had coronavirus and comes back, so he he's moving forward, yeah. but then he's held held back. I would maybe come out and say something like, Look, a lot of people are dying, but also a lot of people are hungry. And listen, I will talk to Nancy Pelosi on the phone right. or wherever she wants to meet, yeah. and let's solve this. There was let's nothing get... humble about that. There was no moment of reflection. I mean, like, you know, Reagan, for whatever you think about Reagan, Reagan got shot and changed his tune on guns. Uh, better for mm -hmm. worse, that shouldn't be the thing it takes maybe to change your mind on a thing, is, you know, you. but he faced it and it happened and he, you know, was changed by it. Um, there's just this is not a person who has changed in any way, um, given anything we've seen. And so, and, you know, it, no, I mean, not to get too in the weeds of the politics, but it's like it's interesting to me that his sort of arc 
and I say this knowing that there's an election coming up and I don't know when this airs or what we'll know at that point uh, when it does air. Um, if he is not elected again, I think he, boy, he sure could have been. And it's going to be that sort of classic tragic character flaw. That narcissism is his, his tragic flaw, right? His Achilles heel, because he walked into office and they had for him a pandemic book. Like, here it is. Do this. Follow this map. And he didn't have to do anything. He could have even taken total credit for it. He could have been like, yeah, I came up with this book. I wrote this book. This is our plan. And we're just going to do it. And he could have done everything. And he could have still remained the sort of horrible narcissistic man that he was and still continued doing whatever he wanted to do. If he had just followed that playbook, he probably would have been reelected in a landslide because people would have been like, well, this one overarching terrible thing in our lives, he, he handled it. He did. And he was the good guy. He figured it out. He could have he could have spun up all kind of lies about how he invented this thing or whatever it was. But uh, because it was stamped by other people, especially Obama, like the chief sort of like, you know, tragic nemesis of him, he he views him as this uh, this sort of wretched figure, this ghost haunting him all his life. Um, he could not possibly accept that there was a plan to fix this problem that didn't, you know, didn't start with him. And so he'd reject it entirely. And then there's been, because he has no plan. And here we are. And his tragic flaw is something we're all, we're all uh, sort of breathing the same air. He is, we're all, we're all suffering the tragic flaw along with him. Right. Right. And it's funny if he had, if he had moved his character forward, mm -hmm. He still might have won in the landslide. Yeah. I mean, for all we know, we don't know what's going to happen. True, but true. Maybe, maybe he will maybe win he will. the landslide. <laughs> Knock on all the wood, but yeah. But it would have been something that would have made more, you know, you could have connected the dots more easily. Three great words, free, fries, Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax, must update rewards. Okay, another, another, uh, and I hope you don't mind, I'm asking about all these, I'm darting back and forth between all these writing oh, concepts yeah, that it. you talk about. You mentioned if you jump too fast into waters too deep, the audience Drown. So if you go like right into the action, sometimes that's that's not good. Although although like a James Bond movie always starts with some intense scene of action, but we all know that's not really the, the the story hasn't begun yet. We're just kind of establishing the qualifications of James Bond at the beginning of every right, movie. Right, and we also start every movie already knowing who James Bond is at its core. Right. Um, and they've done a little more work these days to actually make him more of a character, like give him a little more of an arc, which is unusual because he used to be the character who never changed. He changed the world, the world didn't change him. He was that heroic sort of mode. Um, but now he's a little bit changed. He's, he gets more damaged. He gets he has a little more of a growth sort of a cycle to him. Um, but even in those uh, jumping in, you can always sort of, they create easy stakes. Like that person is a bomb and they're going to blow up all those people. And we can kind of easily emotionally, viscerally understand that it's maybe not wouldn't be satisfying as a long-term thing, but in a two-hour film, it kind of worked. Um, but yeah, you have some danger as a storyteller in sort of bum-rushing the audience with a lot of, uh, you know, stimuli, like, you know, in terms of the action scene with, you know, you're basically, you're trying to give them something to hold on to. You, you know, everybody needs handholds in a story, and those handholds are usually 
the reasons we care and characters are the reasons we care. And if you don't give them those things, you don't give them a few traits to sort of believe in and a few character things to believe in. Um, it's just like being thrown around a room with that. It's like, you know, it's like a trampoline. You're like, well, I'm bouncing. Like something's happening, but I don't know. I don't have any emotional investment in this this movement. Yeah, so like a few years ago, I read this novel. Um, I forget the name of it. It was by, the author is his name's David Levine. He's a co-writer on the show uh, uh, Billions, and it was um, the very first chapter. A little boy is riding a bicycle, and a car kind of hits him, and takes the people get out of the car and take him and leave the bicycle, and that's the first chapter. And the whole book's like basically, you know, there's this child you know, trafficking, sex trafficking ring, and he's being kidnapped. Is that, that, is that too fast to get into it? That felt normal for me in the sense that I got really invested right away. Like, I hope they can save this boy. Yeah, of course. And I assume, Even though we didn't know anything about the character Yeah, I mean, yet. it probably gave you something about him, right? Something in the way he was acting or, you know, you probably got a sense of who the character was, just to leave it a little bit. Like, it doesn't need to be much. It's just usually a tiny percentage, even in the way they look or the way they act, if they're humming a song or if they uh, have a certain kind of decor or something on their T-shirt, just these little signals that you're like, okay, I kind of have a picture of who this person is in my mind. Uh, like I said, it's a little easier in, in film and TV because you have so many visual hooks on which to sort of hang you know, your hat. Uh, whereas in a book, it's all what you have written. And if you don't write it, you can't see it. Like, I don't have to, you know, in a, a film and TV script, I don't have to write, and then there's a tree, or here's what's on his T-shirt. People are all handling that. Like, there's this massive amount of information visually on screen that you don't get uh, in a novel. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the idea of, you know, and, and, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, with, you know, the idea that there's really no new stories. So what ends up happening is there's kind of a bunch of, uh, to use the word tropes to to start things off. So again, so like for instance, the born identity. He starts off with amnesia, which happens in quite a few classic <laughs> yeah. stories. Yeah. Um, like I don't know if you ever read the, the Amber Chronicles. Oh, Zelazny. Yeah, of course. It's been a bit years, but sure. Yeah. So um, whatever his name is, I can't even remember yeah, his name. Starts off amnesia, with amnesia, right, right, right? And it takes a long time for him to get over the amnesia, but it's the same thing with the born identity or, or like mad men, there's this concept that he has a, a, you don't really know his real identity. Yeah. It leaves a lot of little mysteries, little hooks. Or in other stories, the main character, you start to realize, Oh, this guy can live forever. Right. And so that's the trope. And so, and then, and, and then always it sort of seems added to that particular trope is that, you know, all of a sudden he finds out, there's someone else that could live forever who's a lot older than right, them. Right, right, right. And, so, and so, like an interview with the vampire, yeah. it's like or that. Highlander, uh, sure, by, absolutely. By yeah. Anne Rice. And so, so I wonder, and, and I love these tropes, yeah. you know, that, that, oh, here's another live forever one, or here's another one where this guy's actually a god, but he's been thrown down to, to earth for some reason. So that ranges from the comic book Thor to Gaiman's American yeah, Gods right. to whatever. Uh, you know, and then of course every legal thriller by John Grisham <laughs> is a young, you know, idealistic lawyer. Yeah. lawyer. <laughs> yeah, and he wants to help people, 
uh, but but he's also attracted to the money, and then that tears him apart and creates the story. So so. I almost wonder if there's an encyclopedia of these tropes because they're all great. Oh, uh, TV trips. Look at the website, TV trips. It gets into the weeds with some of them, but it it handles all the big stuff. Yeah. You can literally click on a trope and it'll tell you a lot of the places it shows up in. It's super great resource for everybody. You know, I found um, like one time I was writing something. I wanted to write a screenplay and I, I wrote something that I thought was interesting to me, but then I realized I was too in love with the concept and didn't think enough about the character. Yeah. And this this is a point you bring up a lot, which is that really the characters are driving It's everything. They're why we're there. Everything. Yeah. There's no plot without the character. The characters are the plot, which I think is what people miss. Yeah. World building is meaningless without characters. Yeah. Twists and turns meaningless without character. Yeah. So how'd you get to do uh Star Wars? It's described a little bit, you know, in various places, but what's your story? Like how'd you get to do a Star Wars novel, which is like <laughs> a dream come true for about a billion people? Uh, I tweeted about it, which is not usually how you get a job. Um, and it may not be again, but, uh, no, I, I knew there were new films coming and I expected there to be new books. Uh, so I just said, I, like, I could totally rock a Star Wars novel and I'd love to write one. And people I knew, I was fortunate enough to be connected to people who, uh, separately from each other actually kind of moved that request into the places it needed to be. Um, and next thing I know, I was meeting with um, an editor at Del Rey at New York Comic Con. And uh, they asked me to write up a synopsis. And I was the only other one doing it. So it wasn't, I wasn't even competing against anyone. And next thing I knew, I was writing a Star Wars novel. Uh, did you have to pitch an idea that first meeting? Well, they had, not the first meeting. They told me that there was a timeline. Like it had to be set in the year after Return of the Jedi, building up to this this thing called the Battle of Jakku. And that's literally all they had. They had no story. They didn't know what would fill that time period. They just knew it couldn't contain too many, if any, of the main characters. It had to be new characters. Uh, So that's, then they said, well, get back to us with a story idea. So what were your first thoughts on story ideas? Well, they initially were like, well, what if we did something that was more like World War Z, the um, zombie uh, novel by Max Brooks? Uh, where it's just this sort of piecemeal kind of like just a patchwork of narrative, you know, uh, set after the fall of the empire. Uh, and I thought that's really cool, but it's also like, if I, you know, I'm really greedy. And if I want to write a Star Wars novel, I want it to feel like a Star Wars novel. And that doesn't feel Star Warsy to me. That feels like something else. So, uh, but I was also greedy enough that I still like that idea enough that I put it in the aftermath books as these interludes. I'm like, well, I'm going to drop in these interludes that take us to different parts of the galaxy and cover different sort of bases, um, media, religion, you know, things like that, like, if, you know, war and clone wars, like just picking all these sort of characters and moments out of all of the stuff I loved and sort of giving us that view of uh, the galaxy and the fall of the empire from different perspectives. But then also still telling a more traditional, you know, cue the theme music Star Wars story. Do you think they'll ever, uh, I, I assume, I, I imagine there's always the hope that they repurpose it in some way like tv series movie whatever you know i yeah i mean they i know they've popped up in some of the games battlefront has a a bit of the story of aftermath um squadrons has a character from aftermath uh there's rumors that the mandalorian will have a character from really but it's usually yeah uh cobb vanth from the one of the interviews um who stole boba fett's armor um so i don't know i mean that's cool i mean also from a selfish perspective like i get nothing for that like there's no 
it's that's pure ego. There's no, I get no financial reward and I certainly don't own any part of it. And um, so if they do it, that's cool and great. But also then you're like, well, they're getting rich off, off my ideas, which is, I mean, I always understand that's the point of, you write IP, someone else is always getting rich off your stuff. But uh, well, well, what do you think of The Mandalorian? I love it. Yeah, it's great. It. It, feels like, it feels like, you know, a different different kind of Star Wars while also being old school Star Wars at the same time. Yeah, it has the, it has the flavor that they always used to describe Star Wars, which is like uh, this this marriage of science fiction and Western. The yeah. Ma- Mandalorian totally feels like that. Totally feels like it. And so everything's rusty and crusty. And, it, you know, it's one of the things that, that, that the prequels sort of bothered me. Everything was so shiny. Um, I mean, some of that came down to CGI, but like, and I understood the point. That was literally the point. It was a world that hadn't yet, quote unquote, fallen or a galaxy that hadn't fallen. So everything was like shiny chrome looking good. But to me, Star Wars is always that, you know, rust bucket, you know, Millennium Falcon. I mean, the Millennium Falcon to me is the perfect metaphor for Star Wars because it's a sort of a piece of junk that flies beautifully and you love it, right? I mean, it's like Star Wars is a hot mess. Like it doesn't follow any of its own rules. It's like, it's, it's quote unquote science is dubious at best. Um, it's, it's a one wonderful mess. And uh, that's what I love about it. Like it feels like the Millennium Falcon. It feels like someone built this thing together out of space junk and sort of kicked it into space. And then it goes high. And then it's like the fastest flying, craziest thing that you've ever seen. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if this is, again, I'm going to use, use the phrase trope. I don't know why I hate that word and I keep using it, but uh, I feel like it's a new word which it's like synergy. <laughs> it like never existed before. And then suddenly it, it's everywhere. But uh, I like these, this idea of like, everyone's got a code. So, yeah. you know, there's the dark side, there's the good, the good side of the force, the, the, the light side, whatever. And, you know, the Mandalorian has his code. Yep. And that seems like, you know, always something exciting. Like you, you respect someone who lives by a code. Yeah. And that's actually one of those things that comes to that like sort of um, heroic characters, right? The ones who change the world but are not changed by the world. They usually have a code and uh, live by James Bond, you know, Sherlock Holmes. They have codes. These are like iconic characters who follow almost a set, almost like a program. They follow a certain kind of uh, moral program. Yeah, but I guess guess if you think about all the nine movies of Star Wars, it almost becomes that the code, and you refer to this a little bit in in Kick-Ass Character when you say, Places are characters, but it's almost like codes have are, are places are characters, and it's almost like codes are characters. So, like by the end, you know, the last Jedi, the code is has become gray. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, the code changes. The code can shift. Sure. So uh, as it should, maybe. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. So, so what's what's next for you? I feel like you've done everything. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like in. Just to tell you, like in the, in the early '90s, I got obsessed with I wanted to be a writer, and so I was writing nonstop. And of course, like anything, everything I wrote was horrible, but I thought everything <laughs> was great. So yeah. I would submit it everywhere and get rejected everywhere. And I even wrote like comic book scripts, and uh, uh, you know, so you you've managed to persist and do everything that. I always dreamed about. I, I write a lot of narrative nonfiction now. Sure, sure, and, of course. And, and, and I always try to, I think what was, what helped me build an audience was that I took the structure of a story and applied it to my narratives, like my own personal story. But it's still, yeah. so sometimes people would ask me, is this, is this real or is this not real? Because I would use like the, the, 
these classic ideas of fiction storytelling. Yeah, you're telling uh, it like a story, like a proper story. Right. And so maybe one day I'd, I'd get back to it. But sure. uh, I always found it much easier to write about things that actually happened to me because then <laughs> it's easier for me to draw upon my emotions and make it, you know, and expose my vulnerabilities rather yeah. than making up some. But like uh, you've really done, you know, comic books, movies, novels, games, like the whole and, and you know, different types of novels. Like what's what's next for you? Uh, yeah, it's, I had this was the first year. Twenty twenty is the first year I didn't have any anything released, um, and it was a mix of reasons, for like from pandemic to election. Um, I had a novel that was scheduled to come out, and the publisher uh, wisely, as it turns out, um, I think flinched with the because it was set to come out uh, this month in October, and they were like, eh, like it gets real hard to get you know media attention and any attention at all when there's an election year especially an election that has to do with Donald Trump. Yeah. So, um, you know, 2016, it was very hard to get through the noise to, to have any promotion for a book. So uh, they moved that to January. So 2021 comes out and I have three things coming out. And I have um, a series of, I did used to do these like motivational, insane tweets in the morning. Uh, so um, Rizzoli Publishing wanted to do a book of those. So I have an artist, uh, the wonderful Natalie Metzger, who was doing all this weird sort of monstrous art, this cartoon art to go with my tweets. And so that'll be a book coming out in April. And then July sees my first real like sort of horror novel, um, The Book of Accidents. And then- what, What's uh, that about, can I ask? Uh, I don't have a good tagline for it yet, but it's sort of a, a haunted house story that's not a haunted house story that has to do with the, the sort of psych, breaking cycles of abuse. And uh, there's a serial killer and there's dimensional hopping. It's crazy. It's a strange, strange book, but I- um, Hopefully it'll, it'll work and we'll figure out how to tell that story um, or how to pitch it. Um, and then in October, I have a middle grade sort of funny, scary book, funny horror book uh, coming out called Dust and Grimm, which is, you know, the, a little more classic vampires, werewolves, fairies kind of book. And and it's funny, brother, you're right about 2020. Like I had, uh, this is the, well, actually, let, this was the first year I really had nothing come out in about 20 years. And, Weird, isn't it? Uh, yeah, because of between pandemic and uh, tw and Trump and the election, so I, I also have three things coming out in in twenty twenty one. Oh, what do you got? What's coming out? Uh, well, I have um, kind of a also kind of a motivational book based on the idea that I've had to switch professions quite a bit. Sure. Yeah. And whenever you switch professions, as as you know, because in your own way, you've had to switch from one thing to another very quick. It's hard to once you switch. First, the first thing that happens is everybody tells you, you can't do that. You gotta, right. everybody else started at 18 doing yeah. this and you're 50, yeah. how are you gonna? Yeah, you're not allowed. You're not allowed, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta stand in line and wait your turn. So, so it's basically about this concept of you should do what everybody tells you you can't do. You know, follow your passions is the, the saying. And, um, but there's also I, ways to originally you know, be original and learn. You don't have to follow the 10,000 hour rule of right. trying to be the best. There's other ways to do it and and rise to the top 1% of your field so you can monetize. Yeah. And so, so that first book's about that. Another one's about, I'm doing with um, uh, a guy who's a well-known voice in um, the African-American community and Black Lives Matter and so on. So we have this idea of, uh, uh, that's it's gonna be, it's gonna shake the world about how our, uh, our understanding of this I hope. And uh and then just other random 
random things, but nice. I'm, I'm excited about it all. But here's um, to 2021, right? Let's, yeah, let's 2021. Hope hopefully, <laughs> hopefully there won't be civil war distracting yeah, us. Yes, from yeah. We can't publish your book until after the civil war is over. <laughs> I know. I'm waiting for that, and you're like, well, I think that's fair, but oh no. Yeah, and so, um, and then there was one other thing I wanted to 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 ask you. I always forget in the middle of, of podcasts. <laughs> Which is which is bad. I I've done like a thousand podcasts, and I always get nervous for for each one. Um, I think that's cool though, because that means you you care. I mean, that's like a, you know, you're it's real for you. Yeah. Well, I always I always approach a podcast like I want to learn, and so yeah. even when I write something, I always ask myself, what am I learning from what I'm writing? And I get the sense that you do that as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, both for selfish reasons, like how can I put this in a book? <laughs> and yeah. also for that just sort of moral growth, like I want to be a better person and learn things and impact the world in a more um, useful and better way. You know, and and one other kind of slogan I use for myself is I usually don't want to hit publish on something unless I'm afraid of what people will think of me, because then I know I'm challenging some comfort zone that I haven't challenged before. Yeah, it usually indicates you're either in an interesting place or a dangerous place, and sometimes they can be the same thing. Yeah. Okay, so I, I remember the two final things. I, okay, I want. all right, let's hear so, it. So first off, uh, you always do this five things I learned from writing X, and yet mm -hmm. you, you invite these other authors on who've written like, different novels. What mm -hmm. have you learned from their five things over time? You've done like a lot of these now. Uh, I've learned that, I mean, this sounds cliche, but we all, no one tells stories the same way. No one knows how to write a book. That's a great quote. And that's good. That's a really good thing. No one knows how to write a book. And every book is its own thing. And I think, you know, writers internalize their own mythology, right? We all like, this is how I do things. And I, I've done this myself. Like, oh, I get up at, you know, six in the morning and I coffee and I write by, you know, seven and I've got to write 2,000 words and it's ass and chair time and whatever else, whatever you tell your narrative as to how you write books. But then inevitably a book comes along and reminds you that you don't know any of that. None of that's true. The mythologies are just that. They're just myths. Um, and every book demands a new way to be written and challenges your way. And I can see it in these five things that everybody's sort of like, they're all coming up with lessons that are their own lessons. Like I, if I wrote that same book, I wouldn't have learned those same things and I wouldn't have even written the book the same way. And uh, and I think that's really a value add. I don't I don't think in any way that that's a problem. And I think it's, it's really changed uh, over time my approaches to how I administer writing advice and damn fine story, you know, begins with like a whole prologue warning, whatever you want to call it. That's about like writing advice is bullshit that, you know, but bullshit can fertilize. That's the whole thing. Like it, it just because it's bullshit doesn't mean it's bad, but it does mean it. you can't take this as like sacred handed on a tablet from the mountain kind of a thing. So, Oh my God, I got to steal that quote. Bullshit can fertilize. <laughs> bullshit can fertilize. Yeah. Writing, writing advice is bullshit. And so, and then the other thing that I really admire about your career is that you you have tried everything. You know, there's always this aspect of being creative in the domain. So for instance, understanding the art of storytelling and and using your philosophy about storytelling, including what you just said, to make good stories. But then there's, there's the other aspect, which is you have to understand the field. So yeah. who, who are the agents? Who are the publishers? What are the deals? How do you negotiate? But you've played around with this as well. Like you've launched books off of Kickstarter, you've self-published, mm -hmm. you've done all sorts of things. And and you have to do that in today's world. You have to understand the field in a very nuanced way to, mm -hmm. to succeed and make money. And how what do you how are you feeling in general about books and reading? Like, do you feel people read less? Do you feel people read differently? Or there mm -hmm. or are they obsessed? Are young people now instead of reading 
you know, science fiction novels. They're going on TikTok for seven hours a day. I don't like, know. I mean, given that I know some of the biggest money is in like middle grade. And the reason the, the money is there is because kids are reading, uh, you know, and young adult. I mean, young adult was a, is and was a profoundly successful quote unquote genre. I mean, I don't know if there's really a genre in the strictest sense, but age range of books. Uh, and so as much as there's, you know, social media and TikTok and whatever else, like, you know, the kids are definitely reading. Um, I I can't speak to adults. I feel like if I had to guess, and I don't necessarily have the stats to back this up, I feel like there's probably fewer adults reading books now than there were 20 years ago. But um, there's also better ways to bring those readers together. Um, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, someone like Stephen King, you, you know, people aren't selling copies like some, like, like the big hit, authors sold in the you know 80s or 90s they're just the books aren't selling that way but you're also seeing maybe more books produced and maybe books by uh, more marginalized communities produced which is good um you're starting to finally see that especially in science fiction and fantasy i feel like science fiction and fantasy is at a better vanguard for doing more interesting things with narrative than maybe you you can see in some other places um so you know i think there's even if maybe there's not 100 success to become like that meteoric you know, I'm I'm like the Motley Crew, you know, of of of, of uh, an author that huge like you know hit record hit book kind of thing. Um, I think you also have more opportunity to do more things and braver things and stranger things with the books you're you're writing and the books that are getting out there. What do you mean by braver things? Well, like I said, uh, you know, not just um, giving stories to and letting um, marginalized communities tell those stories, people who mm. were maybe not necessarily uh, expected to or uh, as easily allowed into the space, um, finding publishing becoming more inclusive, though imperfectly so, obviously, um, and it has a lot of uh, miles to go uh, before it sleeps. Um, I do think you're seeing a lot more interesting tales being told. And um, also, in, even just in terms of the form and in terms of genre mashing and things that are unexpected, things you would not have ever seen 20 years ago. Um, Gideon the Ninth, you know, lesbian necromancer novel. It's like, you know, you in the 90s, you, I don't know, that would, that would have been a little more, you know, what? How dare, oh my God, you know, Poppy Z. Bright type stuff. Um, it wouldn't well, have been I used crazy. to love Poppy Z. Bright. Poppy Bright is wonderful, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's good to see more of that and uh, kind of breaking those walls down and sort of changing our perceptions of what books can and should be um, and continuing to do it that way is is powerful. And also platforms like Kickstarter or Patreon yeah. or Gumroad. Like there's uh -huh. a lot of people, they were, I mean, I know friends of mine who they will not write a novel or a book unless Simon & Schuster is going to publish it. Like they're just grown up thinking this is the way to do it and then they're going to win the Nobel Prize, no problem. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on your goal. Um, you know, if the goal is to, to sort of tell that story, then I don't see why you wouldn't at least consider um, things like Kickstarter. Well, Kickstarter is tricky if you're, if you're, for lack of a better term, not a known quantity. Because some people think Kickstarter is like, or, or any sort of crowdfunding means that they're going to crowd surf you to the stage, but you need a crowd first. Like you have to have your crowd in place to get you to the stage. They, otherwise it's like, I got 40 bucks, like that's it. And then the, the campaign dies. Um, but self-publishing on a place like Amazon, though Amazon is also fraught because it's, become so much of a juggernaut that um, 
it's almost more of a juggernaut than traditional publishing is in terms of like, at least in traditional publishing, you have all these publishers sort of bouncing off each other and you have a lot of option. Um, but the more that Amazon dominates the self-publishing field with Kindle and uh, eBooks in general, it gets harder and harder to go outside of that and to do differently. I mean, I've had actually a lot of success selling directly um, through PayHip and, you know, uh, which is a Gumroad like service. So um, yeah, PayHip. Wow, I never it heard just, of that. Yeah, they just deliver directly and it's nice. And you get a, a large chunk of the royalties as opposed to, you know, Amazon. Um, so, but it's still obviously viable. So I think thinking about all those things and also just having it, trying to understand them all just in case one of those options dies on you. And that's true in genre, in um, method and path to publishing. It's true in medium, just sort of having some, your, your tentacles sort of out there and being aware of everything. Cause it's like someone who writes like, well, I write mysteries for Simon and Schuster always. And then if the mystery genre is no longer interesting or Simon and Schuster goes belly up for some reason, then what are you gonna do? Um, it's harder to change gears. Um, the more it's like why branding is really dangerous for authors because branding is like, like, you know, it's like, it's like livestock branding. It's the type of thing that they sear into your, your ass to sort of make sure you stay where you're supposed to stay. Um, whereas if you from the outset have a more diffuse, diverse brand of like, well, I can do all of this stuff. Uh, I'm not just the guy who writes, you know, this particular niche of mystery novel. Um, it means from the outset, you can kind of uh, stick and move a little more interestingly. And if one thing, if one door closes, you, you've already opened 10 other doors for yourself that you can dart through one of them. Yeah, I, I really believe that as well. So Chuck Wendig, there, there's so many things I could recommend that you put out. <laughs> like, first off, for anybody who's a writer, your blog, Terrible Minds, and all the advice you've given it, and all the advice other authors given it, and this is related to, you know, Kick-Ass Writer and Damn Fine Story, like these books that you've written about writing. Uh, I just love it all. And then the Aftermath series, uh, your book, The Wanderer, or Wanderers. Uh, I haven't read the the Miriam Black series, which we were, we were referring to earlier, but I'm I'm going to order them right now and read them. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoy uh, it. Uh, it sounds I love I love the concept. So I and it's I, a, it's I, a full series. It goes from start to finish, and it's a full series. So you can be confident that it, it ends. Excellent. And you should you should you should write a sequel to Lost. Like I I just heard a rumor the other day they might have a, a sequel series to Lost. Oh no, kidding! That'd that be would be the best thing That'd ever. Be cool. I, I'm into that. <laughs> All right. All right, Chuck. Thank you. So is there hey, anything thanks. else you want to promote thanks. or anything? No, that'll like, be it. That's it. I'm good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. I really super appreciate it. I've been a big fan for a long time. Thanks, man. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba.